we're starting something new today. Uh, so if, if you've been here for a while, uh, you know that one of the, the things that we do as a pattern is we study books of the Bible verse by verse, typically. Uh, so like we just finished 1 John. Uh, we took a little break for our Advent series the, where we look at the initial coming of Jesus and we look at his future coming uh, around Christmas time because that's what Christmas is for. That's what we're celebrating. And then we've actually last week finished up our study of 1 John. And we've done that uh, over the life of this church. Uh, I could think back to the early days where when, when Natalie and I first moved here uh, very early in the life of the church, we were actually kind of going through Mark at that time, I remember. Uh, you can't even find access to the, that stuff on our website. That's how early that was. Um, we also have done topical things. Uh, I remember one of the things we like to do is a heavy, uh, a healthy dose of both New Testament and Old Testament. And so, like, well, typically what we would do coming out of 1 John is we would find an Old Testament book, and we would walk through that together. Uh, but one, one year we did, uh, we actually studied the life of Abraham. And so we looked at Abraham specifically as we walked through how God revealed himself uh, through his life. And then we've done some standalone things. Uh, racial reconciliation is one that comes up uh, uh, once a year, usually. And then uh, we've done adoption and foster care before we've done church unity uh, the inerrancy of scripture, just different standalones. When we have a one week that we can kind of fit in something, uh, maybe we feel it's necessary, we'll do it We'll do it at that time. We're doing something a little bit different this year, and we are really excited about it. We're going to study the whole Bible. Now, obviously, um, the, way we, the way we preach, uh, it would take us a lifetime to actually study each verse uh, and, you know, teach on it, especially because we're long-winded, right? So we're not going to be walking through the whole Bible verse by verse, but we're going to be looking at what's called the meta-narrative, the grand narrative of Scripture. Um, and we've got a little something special for you. Uh, because one of the things that I found as a parent is that there's this book right here, and there's many of, many of them that I would recommend, and this is one. Uh, it's the Jesus Storybook Bible. How many parents, how many of you have this, just out of curiosity? All right. <laughs> um, we found this to be very helpful, uh, along with other books very similar, because it tells the whole story, right? It starts from the beginning, and it's always talking about Jesus. And so with our six-year-old, each night we read, whether it's this one or we ha we've got a couple others, uh, we'll read a story, and we'll, we'll ask questions, and we'll discuss it together, and we'll pray uh, as a family coming out of that discussion, and that kind of inspired what we're doing this year with our church, because why is it just kids that should be exposed to that? It's kind of our thought. Why don't we, as a church, take a break from the details of the verse-by-verse -verse, um, exposition of Scripture in a specific book, and let's take a step back and let's see the big picture from beginning to end. And so that's what we're doing this year. Uh, we are going to be looking at, from cover to cover, what God is communicating about himself, what he's communicating about us, and about his plan to redeem mankind for his glory. And as we do this, we have something special for you. Uh, our elders, uh, Blake, Trent, and myself, along with Joey Sedlock, who preaches on occasion, and with some great help in the... In the um, and the pinch from our creative team, they're awesome, by the way, uh, we have assembled a study guide uh, for you. And so each week, 
uh, you'll have a study guide that will go out to you. Uh, you'll have a text. So if you are not yet, if you have not filled out a, a, a connection card, or better, text this number and you can fill out the information digitally so that we can add you to that group text that will go out. And it'll be a link every Sunday afternoon uh, after we are, are done with this Sunday morning gathering. And you'll have in here some assigned reading. You'll have questions for examination. You'll have questions that will start to encourage you to consider how you might apply um, what you've read. And then um, some, some guidance on prayer. Within that, there will also be a section that will point you to this book. So whether you are parents, parents, this would be great. Um, it'll actually walk you through, hey, go do this with your family. So the, the goal here, and look, the, there's an introduction. The introduction is going to communicate this, but I just want you to know, the, the aim is not for you to prepare all week for Sunday morning. Sunday morning is not the climax of our week. Sunday morning is the starting point. Our job as pastors and teachers is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, so we're going to equip you. We're not going to be able to preach the whole text sometimes. I mean, I looked earlier, I think there was one, it was like 28 chapters. We'd be here, you'd miss the saints game, right? So, so we're not going to do that, but we're going to show you, hey, look, we're going to preach a specific text, and then we're going to encourage you to go home, study more, study deeper. And then for you parents, use this. After you've been equipped and you've studied, and sit with your family and lead them in discussion. doesn't have to be parents. I'm going to be honest with you. There are a lot of us that can benefit from this. I'm not obviously saying this is the same authority as this, right? This is Sally Lloyd-Jones. But it's helpful. It's a summary. And it will, it will serve, after you've studied Scripture, it will serve as a good point of discussion for you to spend with your friends, for you to spend with uh, your community groups. If you're in a small group, use it. Um, so... I'm trying not to go long on the introduction, but that's what we're doing. A lot of work and a lot of prayer has gone into that, uh, so we encourage you. We do have like four of these, um, so I encourage you, if you don't have one, to buy one. If, you, if, that's, if that's an issue, don't worry about it. We got copies, and we can buy more, so you, I'm, I'm going to be in the back afterwards. Um, we also know that some of you are visiting, and so... By the time you text that number, it's not like an automatic thing where all of a sudden you're going to be enrolled. So if you have not filled out a connection card until today, I'll have some printed out, some of those guides printed out in the back. For the rest of you, later this afternoon, you're going to have a text message go out to you. You'll have a link, and you can go access it, and you'll have this week's uh, material for you. So a lot of work went into that. I'm thankful for the elders and for the creative team and helping us pull this off. Um, and for Joey Sedlock as well, who's been a, a definitely a key uh, person to launching that. So, all that to say, there's the introduction. Let's get started, shall we? Let's open up to Psalm chapter 19. Psalm 19, I'll give you a, a little bit of background on this. We're going to be spending most of our time focusing on verses 7 through 11. Now, psalm 19 is a psalm of David. So, of course, we know David is the shepherd boy uh, who defeated Goliath and who was called by God to be the king of Israel and uh, through, through whose line would come the king of all kings, Jesus Christ, right? So that's who's writing this psalm. We don't necessarily know the timing of this in his life, uh, but there is a hint that his experience as a shepherd had an influence on what he wrote because we read words in, in verses 1 through 6 
like verse 1. He says, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. And so we can imagine that that shepherd boy out in the field at night, looking up at the sky full of stars and pondering the glory of God as he's looking at creation. And that's what we see in verses 1 through 6. It's statements about the general revelation of God, how you can see that God exists and you can see his character and nature in the things that he has made. Paul says something similar in a less poetic way that would fit his personality. In Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 20, he wrote, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Creation, the heavens, are telling the glory of God. And I do this every time this comes up, but for me it's mountains. <laughs> mountains are telling the glory of God. For my wife, it's the sunset. The sunset is declaring the glory of God. What is that for you? Where do you see there's a God? For some of you, it may be the physical body, right? Like you may be into the biology of things, and you may see how God has created each and every one of us and how all these different parts work together. God's glory on display. But what we know from Scripture is that general revelation is not sufficient to lead us to salvation, right? What do we see in Romans 10? Paul says that man will not believe in what they have not heard. And they will not hear unless someone is preaching. Faith comes through hearing and hearing through the Word of God. We're talking about His special revelation. And that's what our focus is this morning in verses 7 through 11. Because the way David breaks down this, this psalm is he starts off with the general revelation of God that everybody can see. And then he talks about the special revelation in verses 7 through 11, His, his Word. And so, as we start off the new year, and as we look at this, this theme of us looking at all of Scripture, well, how important is God's Word for us? So let's start there. Because as David concludes his poetic statements of general revelation, he picks up with this concept, and he presents a well-structured analysis, which for me, I enjoy. I know for a lot of you, as you take notes um, each week, all three, all four of the teachers and, uh, and preachers, we have different styles. Mine's pretty methodical, right? Like I typically will tell you, we're going to do A, B, C, D, and then I walk you through A, B, C, D. Blake's kind of like, oh, let me go a little bit everywhere, but at the end of it, brings it all back together so we understand it. We have different styles. I love the way David did this one because there are going to be six statements about Scripture, and they all follow the same format. He's going to give a title, he's going to give a description, and then he's going to give a benefit or an effect on man. And then the last two verses that we're going to look at he also talks about additional benefits that Scripture has for us. And at the very end of the psalm, we won't get to that today. You will in your study when you go home this week. He gives his response, and it's a prayer to God. But this is a very comprehensive explanation of the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture. 
when you hear that term, don't be intimidated. It is a theological teaching that Scripture contains everything that we need, all the essential things that we need for salvation, for trusting God completely, and for obeying Him completely. Everything that we need to accomplish those things is in His Word. He has seen fit to do that for us. So Scripture is sufficient, and Dave is going to define that for us today. In fact, it, that doctrine is informed because of texts like what we're going to look at today. So let's look at verse, 17, uh, verse 7 of chapter 19. Let's look at the first half of it. Uh, like I said, there's going to be six statements. They're broken out into three verses, so they'll be, they're called couplets. It's poetry, right? So there'll be two per verse. The first one is, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The first title that David gives to God's word is the law. Now, when we see the word law, what do we think of? Requirements, right? Obligation, things that, that we are to um, submit ourselves to. And they're not suggestions either, right? Try that whenever you're speeding down the road and the police officer pulls you over. I thought it was just a suggestion. No lie, I had a friend in high school. We convinced him that every stop sign that had a white border around it was optional. It was a joke until he got a ticket and he, he, he told that to the officer. Very smart guy. He's actually a pilot today. Lacked common sense. The law of the Lord is, is not a suggestion. It's not optional, right? These are requirements for us, but they're good requirements. Yes, there are some rules. Yes, there are, there are some things. But the reason they exist is because of the fall of man. That's why God had to put these things in place. We ruined creation, right? When, we, when Adam and Eve disobeyed God, they ushered in chaos into the world. And so these laws that God puts in place are for our good. They're to bring in order to our chaos. The literal word here is referring to, it's a stem of the word Torah, which is referring to the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. Many of you know these books. They're the ones that trip you up each year. When you set your New, Year, New Year's resolution to study the Bible from cover to cover, these are the ones that you probably don't get past a lot of times. And it's ironic that when David thinks of these books, his response is they're perfect. They're perfect. The description of perfection may cause us to think of something that is without fault or without error. And while that's an accurate description of Scripture, and we will actually see that later on in this psalm, that's not what David's getting at here. The picture here is that it is complete. It is whole. It's sufficient. It has everything we need. And it's there for a purpose. And what purpose is that? It, David says it's reviving the soul. To revive something is to, to bring something that's dead back to life, Right? And here David said that God's word lacks nothing to bring dead souls back to life. And all of us need this perfect word because all of us have inherited the sin nature and are dead in our trespasses and sins. Scripture is perfect for us because it is a picture here of both conversion, bringing new life, and also transformation. It, it changes us from the inside, our soul, from the very innermost part of our being and changes us from the inside out. Here in simple terms, David describes the first five books of the Bible as God's inspired commands 
that are perfect, lacking nothing to point us to Jesus. Of course, this perfection is not isolated to just the first five books of the Bible. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 17, Paul tells his disciple Timothy something similar to this, that all of Scripture is good in this way. He says, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. He said, you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to lead you to salvation. All of Scripture is profitable. It is God-breathed. It is God's inspired word, and it will train you in righteousness. It is sufficient for salvation and for conversion. So I ask you, what is your view of God's word? David's view was that it was perfect. David's view was that it was the law. Do you view it as a book of suggestions or requirements given to us for our good and not to harm us? Requirements that bring order to the chaos that we brought into this world. Do you see it as perfect? That while it does not contain every single truth that you're going to need to live a life on this earth, it does not lack anything you need for spiritual life. In fact, it's the only source of true spiritual life. To my brother or sister who is trusted in Christ, do you feel dead on the inside? Could it be that you are turning to other things or possibly other people to revive your soul rather than the only thing that can. Are you spiritually frustrated because you don't see growth in your life or you don't see the spiritual fruit like you thought you would see at this point in your life? Could it be that you've been looking to the wrong things for spiritual transformation? The law of God is perfect, reviving the soul. And in verse 7, the second half of that, he says, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The title he gives here is testimony. It, David gives that, it's the t- testimony of Yahweh there. If you look at it, it's, the Lord is in all caps in your Bibles more than likely. And that's the personal name of God. So he uses that title throughout the whole thing here. And he says this is pointing to the fact that Scripture is God's witness. It is his self-revelation. If God's called to the stand, right? And he's giving a testimony to who he is. That's what God's word is. These words on these pages are inspired by God. Yes, they're written by man, but God has inspired them to disclose to us who he is, how he hates sin, how he's just, how he's holy, infinitely holy, how he's compassionate, how he's kind, he's forgiving, he's gracious, and he's loving towards us. It's a self-disclosure to us. And David says that this testimony is sure, It is certain. It is reliable. We can trust it because it's God's self-disclosure and he cannot lie. He's revealing to us who he is and so it is his word and we can take it for what it says. We can rely on it. And then David says it makes wise the simple. The word that David uses for simple is what it appears to be. It's, it's It's a picture of one whose mind is not very complex. So it's someone who's naive someone who's ignorant, they're they're unknowing. 
It's a description of someone who is immature. The literal word here means open door. And so the picture David has in mind is that this, this individual, this simple-minded individual, does not know when to shut the door, does not, does not have the discernment to know what to allow in and what to keep out. Open-minded is the way it would be described. They lack the discernment, they lack the, the skill, the wisdom of godly living. But God's self-revelation cures that. Even for the most simple-minded individual. Paul said something similar in Ephesians 4 in his discussion of the unity of the church when he's talking about the roles that the, the teachers, the, those who would declare scripture, when he talks about their roles, he brings this concept up. He says that he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. See, the role of the evangelist, the role of the shepherd, the pastor, the teacher, is to declare scripture because scripture will provide you with wisdom. It will protect you from falling to false doctrine, to false teaching, to to inerrant things that man creates. It takes the simple-minded individual and it makes them wise. As I was preparing, one of the questions I was faced with personally was in regards to the way that I read Scripture. So I'm going to ask you the same question, and it's a tough one. It was a tough one for me. When you read Scripture, what do you look for? When you read it, what do you look for? See, the tendency we have is to look for things that it says about us. What does it tell me to do? We look for a way to make ourselves the hero, right? Or the one who's benefiting from everything. Do you look for that or do you look for what God's saying about himself and what he's done? Because I've found that when I look for the things that the Bible says about me, very rarely do I see anything good. And when I look for the things I need to do, I walk away with a list of things that are so burdensome. I walk away with a very works-based mentality of, of my relationship with Jesus. My prayer life becomes shallow because whenever I pray to God, I'm asking Him to do these things for me and to fix these things in me. And that's it. My spiritual growth is limited because my understanding of God is limited. In a sense, my mind is simple. And I'm an open door. But when I look for what God's word says about him and what he has done, my prayer life becomes rich, right? It's like on Sunday mornings, like I know some of you are visiting possibly this week, and it's like... You're going to have people pursue you in conversation, but how much of a relationship can be built in that initial conversation here on Sunday mornings, right? Like, that's why we say, like, Sunday mornings is a good time for all of us to get together. But, hey, look, if you see a visitor this morning, ask them to go to lunch with you. I don't know the Saints are playing. Ask them to go watch the Saints game with you. Like, that, those are where relationships are going to happen, right? That's when you get to know somebody. It's not on a Sunday morning when you're standing by the coffee pot. 
And so it is with God. Why do we think we can have a rich prayer life when we know nothing about God? When all we do is look for what Scripture says about ourselves. But it's when we study God's Word and, and we see how He's revealing Himself in His Word that now I know Him. And those conversations between He and I are much richer. They're more meaningful. They're more impactful. And so my prayer life, it, it becomes a different animal. It, it's, it's me and God. And instead of me starting off with, God, I'm so miserable. Will you fix me? Will you help me accomplish this? I say, God, you are holy. You are righteous. You are faithful. It's this praise that I'm pouring out to him because that's the natural response. And so the things that scripture prescribes for me to, to, to become or to do are no longer a burden. Instead, I'm free to pursue these things. They're a blessing. When I look for a God in God's word, I gain wisdom for spiritual life. So what do you look for when you read scripture? The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. In verse 8, his first statement, he says, the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. Precepts is an odd word, right? Like, I don't know about you, but I don't, I don't use that in my vocabulary. But what precepts means is it's like a, a guiding rule or a guiding principle of life. So in context here, David is speaking of the guiding principles that he finds in God's word, and he says that they are right. Not in the sense of them being correct, of course they are, but in the sense of they, they place us on the right path. They're, they're pointing us to the right direction. And when we walk in that path and we submit to the authority of God and obey it, our heart rejoices. This is a deep, true joy found in the Word of God and in obedience to it, regardless of the circumstances, regardless of what comes out of our obedience, we have joy. The prophet Jeremiah knew this to be true. See, Jeremiah was, is known as the weeping prophet. And if you're familiar with Jeremiah, you'll understand why. Because he was called by God to proclaim destruction coming to, to Israel. He was, called to, he was called by God to call his people to repentance, and they ignored him, they persecuted him. And he actually lived in that, that process of destruction. He lived through it. So many scholars, because of the hard life with no, fruit, no visible fruit, even though he completely submitted to God's calling on his life, most scholars think that he also wrote lamentations. It's these lamentations over the state of Israel, God's people, and this is where we are. So he's known as the weeping prophet. But I want you to listen to these words from Jeremiah. A life defined with no fruit and full of lamentation. This is what Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 15, verses 15 through 16. He says, O Lord, you know. Remember me and visit me and take vengeance for me on my persecutors. In your forbearance, take me not away. Know that for your sake I bear reproach. You hear that? You hear the weeping? Listen to this. Your words were found, and I ate them, and your words became to me a joy and a delight of my heart, for I am called by your name, O Lord, God of hosts. Despite the reproach of man, Jeremiah found joy and delight in God's word. 
that is the only place he could find it. The things around him did not fill him with joy. The way that people treated him did not fill him with delight, but God's word did. And that's heavy. Because I know that some of us may, may not necessarily be in a, a position of Jeremiah, but we can kind of feel that way. Things, whether it be recent like days, whether it be the recent year, maybe two years, three years, five years, however long it's been, you may feel that way. Like every time you start to think, man, things are getting better, then something else happens. God's word is your joy. God's word is your delight. I know things around you look crummy, but God's word stands. You feel like you made a wrong turn somewhere. Maybe you're not following that right path. And you no longer experience the joy of Christ in your life. The principles that you find in scripture, they will put you on that path of righteousness. They will enable you to experience that joy once again. Because the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. In verse 8, second half, his, his second statement in that verse, he says, The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. He gives the title commandment of the Lord. It speaks again to the, to the requirement, right? It's a commandment. It's something we are required to do. But here more so is talking about the authority of Scripture. That Scripture is authoritative in our lives that because it's, it's, it's written with the authority of God himself, and so we are to submit ourselves to it. It's the commandment of the Lord, and he says it is pure, which is a statement of its clarity. It's, it's pure. You can see through it. You can understand it. It's about the, the, our ability to understand Scripture. And, and look, not everything in Scripture is easy to understand. We, we stay in our, our class for Bible study methods that the Bible does not yield its fruit to the lazy. But this, this teaching of the clarity of Scripture, what it means is that everything that you need for salvation, everything that God wants you to know, you can understand it. It's clear. It's pure. And that's why he says it, it enlightens the eyes. It, the image here is that God's word brings light to areas that are dark. It exposes things that are hiding. It, it replaces ignorance with understanding. It replaces chaos with order. It replaces darkness with light. And this description is one that I find gives us much hope in a multiple of ways. The first way is, it is okay for us to admit that some of, for some of us, understanding Scripture is harder than it is for our brothers and sisters. That's okay. Like, don't feel ashamed of that. I understand that you may have to work harder than somebody else to gain the same understanding that they have. But what this statement tells us is that you're any fear that you may have that you may be missing out on something is removed. Because God has, has preserved his word in such a way that everything you need is able to be understood. And so what that does then is that it doesn't discourage you as, you as you struggle and you wrestle with God's word to figure these things out and try to understand it. Instead, it encourages you because you know that if God wants me to know it, his Holy Spirit is going to help me understand it. And so it encourages you to keep going, keep striving, 
Ask your brother and your sister for help along the way. That's what we're here for. But keep going. Don't just fold it and put it up and say, well, I'll find out one day. This description also provides hope for, for parents, teachers, children workers. The gospel is clear enough for your children to understand. So preach. Preach. Children workers know that your preparation and, and all the toil and labor that goes into that when you go to that building next door, it's not in vain. Because there may be a soul that's changed because you preach the gospel to them because God's word is able to be understood by even the simplest of minds. Parents, once you've spent time studying God's word deeper, we're equipping you. Preach to your children. And then pray that God would use those special moments with your kids to call them to himself, to enlighten their eyes. This description also provides hope to the church that our mission of reaching the nations is attainable. Because God's word is able to be understood by all. So what that means is while we may have to work really hard to break down cultural barriers, socioeconomic barriers, and we have to pray for the Holy Spirit to do what the Holy Spirit has to do and open up people to receive this word, it gives us confidence that we can share the gospel with somebody who does not speak the same language as us, someone who does not live in the same neighborhood as us, and God can use that and, and redeem someone's soul. It's able to be understood. It's pure. So our response to this description is filled with hope. So let us continue to pursue knowledge, right? Let us continue to press into it as hard as it may be for some of us to keep pushing through and then share that with those around us, both near and far. Because the commandment of the Lord is pure and enlightens the eyes. In verse 19, his first statement, he says, The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. And I will admit, at first I was a little confused that David would use that word, fear. Because to me that doesn't seem like it's a name of God's word. It's a feeling, right? Like I feel afraid. You look at the other five words used in context and it's pretty clear that he's talking about God's word. He says law, testimony, precepts, commandment, rules. Like, that's logical. Why does he use the word fear? Because it's placed within those five other words, it, I'm confident that, yes, he is talking about scripture, but why? Like, why does he use that word? And so I had to ask myself, well, what do I know about the fear of the Lord? And so a lot of us growing up in church, what have we heard? Like, it's not like the horror, horror movie fear. It's not like the surprise fear. It's a reverential awe, right? Like, that's what we hear. It's a reverence. And I feel like for some of us, we, we misinterpret that a little softer than what it's intended. Like, we think of, like, sitting in church with our hands quiet and just reverence. What I picture is the high priest who had to wrap a rope around his ankle because as he entered into the Holy of Holies, he might die. What I picture is Isaiah, who when he sees the Lord seated on the throne, what does he do? He falls to the ground and he says, woe is me. That's the kind of fear I see. It is reverence. It is awe. It is worship. And I think that's what David's going at here. He's talking about how scripture is God's manual of worship. 
because it reveals to us who God is. And what happens every single time someone comes into the presence of God and sees God for his holiness? What do they do? They fall to the ground in worship. Worship is more than just singing songs, right? Worship is submitting to him. That's where Isaiah was, right? So Isaiah falls to the ground and says, Woe is me, you are holy, 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 along with the angels. And then when God says, I need someone to go, what does Isaiah say? Send me. He submitted himself to the authority of God because he's, he's worshiping him. That's the fear of the Lord, and that's what God's word does. That's the natural response. When we see God revealed in his word, we worship him. He says this manual of worship is clean. It is absent of impurity. It is undefiled. And so what it does is it produces in us worship that is pure, that is clean, that is undefiled. And because of its purity, because it lacks tarnish, God's word endures forever. It's unbreakable. It is unending. His word is firmly fixed in the heavens. It is eternal. The first implication of this is pretty clear as it pertains to the way in which we worship God. When we see God revealed in Scripture for who He is, how do we respond? Do we respond like the high priest? Do we respond like Isaiah? Do we respond with a fear, a healthy fear of the Lord? Or do we instead, like we talked about last week with idolatry, do we instead exchange the glory of God for things resembling mortal man and images and creeping things. In order to think about God properly and accurately, we must spend time in his word because that's where he reveals himself to us. The second implication is that these words on, on the pages aren't dead, that they're living, that they're just as relevant today as when they were originally written. They will still transform your heart. They will change your soul. They're gonna, they're gonna, for some of us, we can testify, it will ruin your life. Because your goals and your plans and your dreams that you had, God says, that's not what I have in store for you. Instead, go do this thing that today you think is not worthy. Go do this thing that today you think is, well, that's inconvenient. And it's going to become the passion of your soul. Have cultures and customs changed? Certainly. But God's word endures forever. The last statement he makes in this poetic way is, is in verse 9, second half. He says, the rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. The word rules there is similar to the, what we've seen in the nature of the word law or commandment. And he says they're true. This is where we see how he's talking about the inerrancy of God's word, that, that they are correct, that they are unfailing. There is no error in them. And as David finishes, he, he doesn't give an explicit benefit, right? So this is a little different. He, instead of saying, God's word is this and it does this, what does he say? God's word is true and righteous. He gives another description. The implication, though, is that the true unfailing of word of God produces righteousness in us because it is righteous. For those of us who submit to its truth and not suppress In verse 10, David finishes this section with a couple of additional statements. Verses 10 and 11, he describes the worthiness of Scripture and the enjoyment and blessing that it provides us. He says, more to be desired are they than gold, 
even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. The first half of this verse describes the value of God's word. He says it is more desirable than gold. And then he, he emphasizes it a little bit more, right? He says even much gold. So he, there he's talking about the quantity of gold. And then he emphasizes it again. He says not just much gold, but much fine gold. There he's talking about the quality of that gold. The point David is making here is that it is worth more than everything this world has to offer. It is the most valuable thing, and you should treasure it as such. Do you? Do we treasure God's word that way? That's a tough question, because I know for many of us, we don't. More than likely, I, I would venture to say all of us don't. More than likely, when we think about the things we treasure the most, God's word may not even approach the top of our list. It's like we have the option of taking this stack of a million dollars. I'm a banker, so I thought of money. A million dollars right here and a one dollar bill right here, and we stand back and look at it and like, eh, I'm going to go with the dollar. It's foolish, right? It doesn't make any sense. Neither does exchanging God's word for the other things that we pursue. When we think it's, it's more important for me to Netflix than spend time in God's Word. It's more important for me to sleep in than spend time in God's Word. Do we treasure it like it's the most valuable thing that they, we have in this world? David makes a similar point in the second half of the verse. He uses a different image, one that we can all relate to. He uses food. He said it is sweeter than honey. And not that, that stuff that you buy in like the bear-shaped plastic little bottle. Fresh honey. Like I'm picturing the shepherd boy once again who stumbles across a honeycomb dripping with fresh honey. So sweet to the taste. And David says, God, your word is sweeter than that. For us, it's like filling up on the peanuts at Texas Roadhouse before the rolls come out, because we all know we're there for the rolls. And then when the steak comes out and the baked potato, you can't even eat that either because you filled up on the peanuts. I think of, because our six-year-old loves pizza, it's like eating the crust. And I'm not talking about stuffed crust. I'm talking like Mr. Gaddy's crust, like there's nothing fun about it, and you eat the crust and you leave the rest of it. That's what we do. Because God's word is better than that. It's better than the things that we go to and fill our day with. But we do it every day. And for most of us, I feel like it's become comfortable because we find out that all of our brothers and sisters around us, man, we all struggle with the same thing, so it's okay. Man, I long for, for some of us to start moving forward and say, no, I'm committed because I know that the health and the life that God's word brings to me. And so when my brother or sister says, man, I'm struggling in the word this week for the, for the 50th week in a row, and we say, man, it's so rich for me. I've seen its benefit. Man, how can I help you? How, how can I encourage you? Because you're dying without it. You're starving yourself without it. It's your daily bread. 
In verse 11, David finishes with this statement. He says, Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. He said, on top of it being the most valuable thing, and the thing that brings us the most enjoyment, God's word is good for us because it warns us. It protects us. It, it, it protects us from temptation, from sin. It protects us from false teaching and false doctrine. And when we keep it, when we obey it, it brings blessing. Spiritual blessing, not like the things of this world necessarily. God may see fit to do so, praise him when he does. But for sure, you walk in obedience to his word, you'll, you'll have a rich spiritual life. I have some closing remarks. There were a lot of implications for us in this text. That's why I had to cut it down to verses 7 through 11 because I know the saints are playing and like, I know there's somebody in the back who already told me better wrap it up. This is, this is better, right? It's what we've seen. Like God's word is more valuable than a playoff game that tomorrow will be done with. A lot of implications for us and I encourage you to think about what they have, what, what bearing do they have on your life? But I'd like to give one final implication. With this being the beginning of a new year, it's a great opportunity for us to start fresh. We're enthusiastic, we're encouraged, there's a lot of hope in front of us. New year, new me. I'm going to do it this year. I'm going to study God's word. And this text certainly encourages that. So does Joshua 1.8. Joshua 1, 8, God, uh, God spoke to Joshua and said, The book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Now, we've got to be careful we avoid the error of claiming that promise to Joshua about physical prosper, um, prosperity and physical success, but there is a spiritual prosperity that comes when we spend time in God's word. But I want to caution you with the words of Jesus before you make a grave mistake this year. On the day that Jesus healed a man on the Sabbath, the Jews were upset and they desired to kill Jesus because he was claiming equality with God. So Jesus provided them with multiple witnesses that testified to that he was indeed the Son of God. And one of his witnesses was the word, was the scripture. In John 5, 39, he told them, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. What a tragedy it would be for us to spend our time studying God's word and miss out on the eternal word that it's pointing us to. Because all of scripture is testifying to the coming Jesus in the Old Testament and to the Messiah who has come in the New Testament. You see, Christ is the eternal word that was in the beginning, who was with God and who is God. He is the perfect word that revives our soul. He is the sure word whose gospel is able to be understood. He makes us right. He produces eternal joy in our hearts. He is the pure word, the true light, which enlightens everyone's eyes. He is the eternal word, and he is worthy of our worship. He is the true word and makes us righteous, himself being righteous altogether. He is more desirable than anything else in this world. And through him, we are immensely blessed. 
as we commit ourselves to being a people of the book, to delighting in the word of God, let us commit ourselves to the eternal word of God and finding delight in him, Jesus Christ. And that's where we're going this year. Let's pray. Father, in light of what we've seen about your word, uh, let us respond in the same way David did in Psalm 19. As we say, let the words of our mouths and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. God, we pray that you would give us a renewed passion, a renewed hunger for your word, that we wouldn't turn to other things to fill our empty stomachs, that we would look at your word and how you revealed yourself. And as we do so, Father, we pray that we would not just simply look at it for what it says about us, that we would first look and see what it says about you because it is only when we understand who you are that we know who we are because we are created in your image. And it's only when we know who you are in all of your holiness that we understand our unholiness. And it's when we do that that your Holy Spirit will bring about transformation. It will bring about change. So Father, let us humble ourselves and submit ourselves to the authority of your word. And God, by the power of your spirit, would you let us see your son Jesus through every thread that we search this year. Let us see our Savior and magnify him for who he is, our King of kings and Lord of lords. The one that you sent to rescue us, to fulfill every covenant promise that we were intended to keep but failed at doing so. And as we do that, Father, we pray for transformation and for you to be glorified. In Jesus' name.